Let's do it. All right, fam. I got the big man here. I've got Tyson here, the guru. Um, you guys saw his update this morning. Now, it's supposed to be a live, but Facebook's a G up. I'm boycotting Facebook. I'm off it. I'm putting the same category as LinkedIn. It can get far. So we are uh, we're on Zoom, but I'll post it. You'll get this. Where by the time you see it, it'll be across there, and I'll put the link in there. If anyone wants to join, they can. Um, I don't know if anyone will. I think everyone's pretty sick of Zoom by this stage of lockdown, I reckon, but uh, we'll see what happens. Mate, welcome. Thanks for jumping on. Um, thanks for jumping on, chat about investments. Everyone in the group knows that you're the man for investments. So, um, you know, uh, we've, we've recently done our portfolio up and I've shared that across to you and made sure you don't smash it too hard. Everyone, I've got Tyson's tick of approval on the, on the portfolio, so that's always good. But uh, how are you, mate? You well? Mate, keeping well. Um, you know, enjoy the fact that Brizzy's not too locked down at this stage, but... You know, these couple of cases I've had the last few days that, oh, mate, scared the shit out of me. Yeah, you know, I've got a, got tickets to the grand final on the weekend and I'm hoping it doesn't get canned, so. Yeah, you get, uh, you get locked down. Don't worry, Anastasia loves it. Oh, mate, we'll get it. My my bet's Monday morning, so. <laughs> That's weird. You're hoping it'll hold off, yeah? Well, I've got a mum and dad that flying in for the game, so hoping we get to go and then, you know, Monday morning we'll be locked down for a week, so. Where are they flying in from? Uh, Townsville. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Dad's a mad Souths fan, so he wants to uh, come down and have a squeeze. So. Yeah, who are you barracking for? Mate, I'll have to go for Souths purely just because I can't support Penrith. Oh, that's rude, man. That's rude. Uh, come on, mate. Give us some love there. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, but, it's, a dream, it's a dream grand final without para. Like, obviously, I'm a para supporter and it's heartbreaking. But, um, yeah, my two next favourite teams in there, it's all right. Mate, I'm just happy Melbourne's not there. Like, they've just won too much the last few years, so. I think everyone who's not a Melbourne supporter is happy they're not there. Yeah. But anyway, but, uh, let's, let's jump into it. So um, the agenda today is we're going to talk about uh, what all the fuss in the market is about. Obviously, there's a lot of noise um, and, and some of my, some of my, my clients and my followers either hate or love it, but you know, I don't give a lot of market commentary because... I like to produce, keep people just long-term, you know, I like to keep them focusing on the long-term goal. We don't really have a lot of short-term investors. Um, also, we want to talk about, um, oh, my mum's joining. Good on her. Uh, we also want to talk about, um, yeah, I'll make sure mum mutes first. Come on, mumsy. Hey, mum, how you doing? She's gone. She's out. Mate she doesn't like us. Hates me. Mum hates me. Um, all right. So we want to talk about why do we think anything, the market in general, or anything in any sectors are sort of overvalued? And if so, where? Considerations we want you guys to keep in mind. And then what's the best approach from here for investors? Now, I will preface with none of this is financial advice. It's all general in nature. And we're just getting factual education from Tyson. There is going to be a bit of bias opinion in this based on people as investors. We do have bias. We've got to understand that. Um, me, I don't really give two fucks. I just, you know, put a, the, the way I invest, I guess, is over the years I've fallen trapped to a lot of philosophies. You know, I get sold on a lot of people's philosophies. And what I've started to learn is when I pick managers and I, and I pick, um, you know, I follow trends or when I follow investment philosophies, all I look at now is, is what that person said was going to happen in the past happen? That's it, right? Are they are they accurate to their word? If not, you know what what's going on there. But Tyson is a bit more of the 
the nitty gritty and he'll look down to, you know, the valuations and, and technical fundamental analysis on a deeper level. So that's why we got him on here. Um, just quickly before we start, just remember guys, so my philosophy, my investment philosophy that, we're, that I'm looking at with our portfolios is, um, firstly, markets don't repeat, but they rhyme. And I always say M&M style in the way that, you know, M&M won't use the same word, or the, but there's always a pattern there, right? There's always a pattern that you can pick up similarities in and, and that's how I believe markets roll. Um, I believe opportunity lies in flexibility. Uh, being flexible is the most important part of our portfolios and you can't go broke taking profit. And then lastly, invest for purpose and not money. And the overall philosophy there is best return for lowest risk that meets our desired outcome. That's what we're trying to invest for here, okay? So um, make sure that we're not trying to speculate here. When you guys are listening in, keep that in mind, right? This isn't about picking the next big stock. It's about understanding markets uh, for the long term and in line with your goals. So Tyson, let's start with the first one, my man. Um, What's all the fuss about in the market at the moment? All right, so we're sort of seeing two things that have got the markets up in arms at the moment on a broad level. Firstly, we've got some issues with a huge property developer in China called Evergrande. Um, just to put it into perspective, they're China's second biggest developer, but they're the most indebted company in the world. Um, in Aussie dollar terms, they got roughly $417 billion or so in debt. And basically what we've seen over the last month is they've struggled to, to make some of their debt repayments. Are you telling me if property, a property developer that's in debt? No. Mate, you, you never see it. You know, you never that's see a it. property guy leverage 10 times up on their money, you know, to, to try and, you know, make a quick buck. Oh, great. But um, so a broad level with these guys, they're in a bit of a financial hole. Um, what they've done over the last few months is they've actually started telling their staff yeah. and they forced their staff to invest in some of their funds and things like that. In order to meet redemptions, forced them. Forced. So there was a rule basically if you're a mid, mid level manager or higher, you had to put 21 grand into the funds that they run. And if you're a senior executive, it was a lot more. <laughs> Imagine the, the, what's the, the alternative? You don't work anymore. I'd be taking that leave, man. Oh, mate, I'd be cashing out myself. Like, I think, I think, I think the communism might get you. <laughs> mate, it, it's it's one thing if it's you know a share purchase plan or something like that, and you're able to you know realize some equity, but being forced to basically work for free and give your boss the cash you would have made doesn't really sit too well with me. Oh, and we're we're worried about lockdowns over here. Yeah. So on a broad level, what we sort of seen with Evergrande is these guys are highly leveraged, you know, which is pretty common in property spaces. But what's happened is when some of their interest payments are due, they haven't had the cash available to meet it. Now, their investors include your big guys like your BlackRock, your HSBCs of the world, but it also includes some of their suppliers and things like that. Now, what we've seen, which is a little bit unusual, is with some of their suppliers, they've actually said, guys, we don't have cash. How about a couple of half-finished apartments instead? Now... The reason why the market's a little bit concerned about this one on a broad level is when you've got someone who's this indebted, typically people that have lent the money are going to be relying on the interest payments of that to meet some of their own debt obligations. So it can sort of spiral quite quickly. And, you know, there's reasons why there's been some commentary around saying that, you know, this could be a Lehman Brothers moment. Yeah. Now, I don't think this is the case. And the reason for that's a little bit, I've got to give a bit of background on this. So following the 90s Asian financial crisis, there was a rule in China that all local governments and states had to balance their own budget and they had to be, you know, they had to run reasonable fiscal policy. 
And what they did is they brought in a rule saying that state governments and local governments could sell land to developers. So companies like Evergrande have gone off and bought huge quantities of Chinese land. And you might have seen some of the footage online of these mega cities where no one lives. Yeah, so they've gone off and built thrown out of the apartments and that. That's it. And like, you know, there's footage of, you know, entire cities just being blown up because, you know, no one's chosen to live there. So what I think will happen is the Chinese government will basically come in and say, guys, we're going to buy this land or your land banks back off you. We're going to pay you pennies in the dollars so you don't go insolvent. Um, most likely what you'll probably see on a local level is Chinese equity holders and Chinese bond holders will be looked after. But if you're a foreign investor, so, you know, like one of us that held Evergrande debt, you're probably not going to see anything back. Um, at this point, I think the risk of contagion is relatively low and it's likely to be controlled, but it is still something to keep, keep an eye on. And how's that going to affect someone like BlackRock, who's one of the biggest fund managers on the, on the planet? So with BlackRock, for example, in their emerging market debt fund, they hold around 1% of their assets in these bonds. Okay. You know, so even if, even if that blows up, you know, we're not talking catastrophic losses or anything like that. You know, I think off the top of my head, BlackRock manages around $1 trillion. And if you look at their exposure to Evergrande, it's less than a billion or so. You know, so you're talking on a large scale, you know, minute amount of, of um, you know, risk there. But I mean, you know, for an individual, if you were to lose a billion dollars, you'd, mate, you'd jump off a bridge. Um, probably the other thing we're sort of seeing at the moment which sort of has shaken markets over the last week. Well, sorry, just go back, to Ever, go back to Evergreen quickly. Yeah, sure. Big question that we keep getting is um, how, how do we believe that's going to affect Australian resi market, right? So if if they're getting, if a lot of um, the, the Chinese market, we, we, we know that the Asian market in general, China in particular, holds a lot of Australian resi. What do we think if they're, if they're is there a scarce, are they going to get scared? And, and since they're offloading, property in China, do you think their Aussie holdings are going to get? All right. So worst case scenario here, which I don't think is very likely because basically for generations since China started to open up their economy, they've wanted property to be a sort of key pillar of how people build wealth. However, President Xi's come out, it was about three years ago and said property is for living in, it's not for speculation. And we saw last year in China that roughly 80% of all home sales were actually of people buying their third or fourth property. They weren't first home buyers. They weren't people to live in, you know, they were pure investment and speculation. Um, what we tend to see in China is investors like to invest in either property or small business. They tend to be scared of, you know, fixed income investments and direct equities and things like that. So worst case scenarios, we were to see a bit of fear within that market is some of these investors who, you know, if you've been to an auction in Sydney over the last few years, they're pretty prevalent. We might see some sell-off there and that, you know, could have a negative effect. Um, on a local level, uh, probably the big impact here will be on iron ore. And, you know, we've seen it with iron ore prices going from, I think it peaked at about $240 a tonne, dropped back down below 100. Now she's sitting around that 110 US mark. And the reason for that one's simple. You can't build 40-storey skyscrapers without steel. And, you know, Australian iron ore is the highest quality in the world. So, you know, there's a strong demand for it. Um, well, I think we've seen steel prices rise through through COVID as it is, right? So um, do we see that that's going to be, there's going to go up or down more now because of what's happening over there? So I think 
I thought, you know, when iron ore hit 200 bucks a ton, it was completely unsustainable. And, you know, if you're buying BHP, I think it was about 55 bucks at that point, you weren't looking at good long-term returns. Um, I think what we'll see is continued infrastructure spend across global markets, you know, to help economies continue to rally post-COVID, yeah. which, you know, does provide a strong backdrop for these commodities. And I think relative to long-term average prices, you know, around that $70 a ton, they will remain elevated. Um, particularly what's helping up there is, so in the iron ore market, there's really four major players. There's BHP, Rio, Fortescue, locally, And then in Brazil, you've got a company called Vale. Yeah. Now, what we've seen with Vale over the last four or five years is they are, I don't want to say they're fucked, <laughs> but they've definitely had a lot of production issues and things things along those lines, right? So they had a tailings dam collapse a few years back, which took them offline for a long time. And then during COVID, you know, Brazil was, they haven't had the same experience we have. You know, they've had mountains of cases, you know, people dying left, right and centre. And production is basically, I don't want to say ground to a halt, but it's definitely slowed significantly. So I think what we're going to see there is prices will still remain at a reasonable level. And, you know, when you take a look at a Fortescue or something like that, I think their most recent cost of production per tonne is about $17 US. Yeah. If they're selling these things, you know, selling iron ore at above 100, they're still printing mountains of money. It's still good for the local economy, you know, because iron ore makes up such a huge part of our overall export market. However, you know, it is one where I have been reducing exposure to the sector pretty significantly since iron ore was about 180 or so. Yeah. How do you feel um, overall, say, not just China, but let's say Asia as a market, given um, that the majority of holdings, if you're in a, you're an ETF or an index, right, in, in the Asian market, it's, you're generally going to be tech exposed. But say you're in like something like a platinum Asia, which we hold, but let's say something which is more financials, healthcare as well. How do you feel the, the flow and effect across Asia in general from we know that people are retarded and people are going to see China put it to Asia and they're going to pull back money out of Asia in general, right? Um, how do you see that affecting the flow and effect across the Asian market for investors anyway? All right. So short term, we might see some volatility and continue to see some money flow out. You know, part of this is, you know, we've seen it with big Asian tech recently, whether it's education players through to affecting companies like Alibaba and things like that, where the key risk you have investing in a country like China is governmental risk. Yeah. Right. President Xi over there is able to do basically whatever he wants. Unlike here, where if you want to get anything approved through parliament, you know, it takes two years. You know, half the time you've got three different governments, you know, three different prime ministers trying to run, push it through. It takes forever to get anything done. Over there, being a single party state, they have the ability to pull, to force reform through very quickly and make huge changes. He's my new favorite person based on his thoughts on property. Oh, he's, um, You've got to look at the, the way the Chinese government operates is it's not like here, right? So we saw it during their lockdown process and that there where there's footage of, you know, buildings actually being welded shut. If they think it's best for the people, they're going to do it. However, it might be unpopular. <laughs> they don't care because they, they can't get voted out. You know, she's basically entrenched himself there for as, for as long as he wants. Yeah. Um, the thing with Asia, and I'll look at it this way, is there's a lot of tailwinds going into that sector that are really positive for a long-term investor. Agreed. And 
So realistically, so we look at the rise of the Chinese middle class. It's going through the roof. You know, you look at companies like Louis Vuitton, you know, your high-end retailers, high-end products, sales in China, where all their growth have come from. You know, you look at Chinese tech. I mean, last time I was in China, you didn't use cash. Everything was done via, you know, WeChat Pay or WePay as it's called, or Alipay, things like that. You know, they definitely are able to move really quickly. And in some ways, they are more advanced than us in terms of tech adoption. Now, when you take a bigger approach to these markets, you know, so China, India, you know, even your Bangladeshis and that of the world, you've got a couple of key factors that I really like. Firstly, we have young populations. Like India is actually the youngest population on the planet. We're also seeing rapidly rising levels of education. And you'll see it yourself in your business, or at least in mine, and a lot of accountants do it as well. You get documents and that prepped over there because it's so much cheaper. You know, like for me to hire a reasonable power planner, you know, for my business, you're talking about 120 grand a year. Yeah. For someone with a CPA, MBA, and you know, 10 years experience in India, I'm paying 20 grand a year. So what we're seeing is big fund flows sort of going into these markets with skilled labor, rising middle classes, you know, like there's still a huge part of the Indian population that doesn't have electricity for fuck's sake. You know, so as these continue to move, you're going to see these economies grow. And just to give a simple example, you know, say you're a noodle manufacturer, right? In Australia, you've got roughly 25 million people to sell to. It's a competitive space. In China, I think the population is 1.3 billion. Yeah. You know, so you are able to grow and really build scale. And I think there's a there's going to be a good argument to be made for holding some of your more defensive businesses in these sectors. Yeah. Like, you know, I think it's one where you're definitely going to be more volatile because you do bring in things like currency risk, political risk. But if you're a long-term investor, I think it does make sense to have exposure to these big long-term things. But that's it. That's a, so we've been holding a lot of, like we hold a lot of Asia, um, not not banks. <laughs> I won't touch banks like, too much, but more of your, like your insurance companies and stuff like that, right? And we've held, uh, between tech, healthcare and and finances in Asia, we, I reckon I've, we've held a lot of them since about 2017. And there just seems to be a lot of value year on year there. There is a little bit of volatility, but it seems to be short, very, very short-term volatility for a lot of long-term value, you know? And if you're dollar-cost averaging, it's a, it's a great market to, to hold long-term, I think, if you're smart. Well, that's it. Like, research sort of shows that for an investor, 90% of their returns over the long-term actually come from their exposures, not their individual holdings. Yeah, 100%. And for me, it makes sense when you've got such big long-term themes that are going to take 10, 20 years to play out. I'm not going to be jumping ship over there based on a month's volatility. Well, it seems like um, holdings you would have in Western stuff, like, you know, your emergings, right? You can get that kind of growth holding essentially what could probably be considered emerging, but they would be considered blue, blue chip in other areas, you know, when you're in Asia. Like, it's crazy to think about like that. So one of the, you know, bigger companies that a lot of Asian-focused funds will hold is Ping An Insurance. Yeah. Now, this is a business that's been around for over 100 years. It's able to achieve strong returns on capital. Um, you know, the insurance market there's a little bit different here. I won't get into the technicalities of that one. But what we're seeing is as wealth rises there, there's a growing need for larger sums insured. Yeah, we noticed that um, about two years ago, you look at the, say, like, we ran it through an AIA study, I'm pretty sure. And it was um, 
you know, they've, they've been around for ages, right? But as their wealth is rising, the take-up, and you take up the take-up rate, the year-on-year take-up rate for life insurance versus the population was phenomenal. Like it was a phenomenal per capita ratio compared to someone like Australia where the market's quite saturated as it is. And um, yeah, it's, it's done really well for us as well, holding, holding some of those financial companies as well. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those ones where there's, you know, there's huge opportunities. Like one sector I'm still incredibly bullish on is semiconductors. Yeah. And the reason that one's simple, mate, everything branching from my phone to, you know, you see people with, you know, smart fridges and kettles and stuff nowadays, they all require semiconductors to work. You know, there's going to be increased demand for these things over the long term. And, you know, if we'd start taking a look at, you know, short-term metrics, you know, you're seeing car manufacturers this year saying volumes are going to be down 30, 40%, not because they can't produce, but because they can't get these semiconductors in. Yeah. You know, there's, there's going to be huge growth in this. And, you know, a company like Taiwan Semi, they control the market. Brilliant. So, I think it's important that people understand... Um... I think, I think it's important that people understand we're a risk first reward there, right? Like volatility doesn't equal risk, right? That's something that people, volatility can, can equal risk, but can also equal dramatic opportunity. And if you're running the right strategies and wrong long-term holdings, there's a the, the risk adjusted returns on some of these holdings are phenomenal. So I look at it this way. Risk is, for me, it's not volatility. I think that's a really wrong way to view the risk of a portfolio and the risk of any investment. For me, risk is the chance of permanent capital loss. So it's one of those ones where when you've got markets with huge thematic tailwinds behind, you know, you can make a logical case as to why these businesses will be able to grow at 10% a year for the next decade and you're paying eight times earnings for them or 12 times earnings. Yeah. Mate, that, you know, I don't care if I, if I buy something at eight times earnings, it's growing at 10% a year, the market shits the bed tomorrow and it drops down to five times earnings. The business hasn't changed. Yeah. Mate, I'm buying more. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, one of the keys to long-term investment success, particularly when you're going direct, is buying things that are less than fair price and holding for the long-term, giving your thesis a decent chance to pay out and making sure that, you know, you're not overly concentrated in one stop. 100%. 100%. I think that's really important for people to understand with market at the moment, especially, you know, we could take, you could do something as recent as COVID, COVID 1.0 is an example, right? The market is full of people that are emotional and don't know what the fuck they're talking about or what they're doing. And all they're doing is speculating, right? So if you can come into the market with actual theories and actual ideas or using realistic outcomes and scenarios and stick to your plan, any volatility that happens between now and then, as long as it's not drastic from a, you know, like a Lehman Brothers or something, as long as you're on top of the market and you follow the, the fundamentals behind it, it's all opportunity, right? All volatility is opportunity if, you're, if your strategy is to sell. So here's what I did with my clients last year just after lockdowns and that were ending. You know, I had a lot of clients who I hold West Farmers, you know, so Kmart, Bunnings, Officeworks, right? And as the price started to rebound a little bit from its COVID lows, my clients were calling me up wanting to sell. You know, they'd experienced the worst of it. They didn't, they thought, you know what, like this is my best chance to get out. You know, I want to lock in some long-term gains. And there's one client in particular called me up on a Friday afternoon about 3.30. And I said, mate, listen, here's what I want you and the missus to do this weekend. I'm going to send you a hundred bucks. I want you to go visit three Bunnings near your place and three Kmart's, right? Do whatever. And then call us back Monday morning 
And if you still want to sell, we'll sell. So Monday morning rolls around, have a chat. Mate, how's the weekend? All that sort of jazz. So tell us about the first Bunnings, what happened? He's like, mate, I went there and there was people everywhere. I was like, all right, sweet. What about the second one? Mate, you know, much the same, people everywhere. And I'm like, all right, what about the third? Oh, mate, we ended up, I think I ended up buying some plants or something like that. And I just explained my plan. I'm like, so let me get this right. You've got a business that is now being priced by the market a lot cheaper than it was. Yet when you've gone and visited it, things are going really well. You know, did you think those bunnies were making a mountain of money that weekend? Yeah, mate, yeah, it's crazy. You know, in fact, you went there just to have a look and you ended up spending money. Now, what we've got here by the market is an opportunity to buy a great business, arguably two of the best retailers in the country by a mile, and you're getting it at a discount to what you were paying a month ago. Doesn't that make sense to, you know, hold this rather than sell it? And, you know, I think that's a big one for investors, just understanding what they're holding and why. 100%. And same as um, like we, so we had a we had a huge cash position pre pre COVID one, yep. and uh, we um, it was a conversation I have with a lot of clients, a lot of clients coming in trying to buy specy stocks, right? And I said, what the fuck are you doing? I said, you got blue chips on on discount at specy prices, like, so we end up just like we like we probably ten to fifteen stocks for most of them, all banks, right? All the banks were on fifty percent discount. Yeah. You were buying banks at less than half book value. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think last year, just our bank, just our financial sector alone, we returned like one hundred and twenty percent in that time. You know, we're talking that in a three month time frame. Like, yeah, look. So, like, one of the positions that I loaded clients up mostly last year in was computer share. You know, yeah. which I think is the most defensive business in the country. Yeah. You know, for those who who are listening, you are familiar with it. Basically, when you own a share, you've got to register it somewhere. Right. And for these big companies, so like a BHP, a Rio, whoever, they'll have millions of shareholders. Right. All your dividends have to be tracked, capital raises, all that sort of stuff. It needs administration. Computer share does that. Yeah. Now, year on year, you know, they have a retention rate significantly above 90%. They're able to grow as new companies list and things like that. You know, so you almost have an inbuilt growth rate there of around 3% a year. You have because of the nature of their business, it's incredibly defensive. You know, the market, you know, was pricing this thing incredibly cheaply. Like I think it got down to about 12 times earnings. Now it's, it's not something that's suddenly going to grow 50% a year, but it's going to be a steady accumulator over time. It's got a great record. I think if you go back to the early 2000s, increasing its dividends on a regular basis. And most importantly, for its clients, it's incredibly difficult for it to leave because, you know, if you want to move to a link administration or an advanced share registry or something like that, and you're a huge company, the risk that you stuff that up is huge. It's not worth it. So it means they can increase their prices slightly over time. And the other thing the market wasn't understanding about this business is when they do cash handling, so before they pay out dividend payments and things like that, they hold the cash for clients. Now, when interest rates are high, they're able to earn a decent little margin just on holding cash and, you know, pocket the interest. Now, with rates being so low, you know, the market was thinking, wait, this business is, you know, it's not going to do anything successful in here. You know, you might as well take out the earning stream from that. But there's no reason why they can't charge, you know, BHP or a Rio a fee to hold that cash. Yeah, 100%. You know, and you'll see, see with custodian banks, things like that, there's still a market for that. 
you know, and I think it's a fantastic business. And, you know, I think we've got a 70% return or something like that on cost already. And, you know, again, it's nothing complex. It's something that all my investors would have seen as a result of registering their own shares. Yeah. And, you know, when you're able to buy something like that at a great price, take advantage of it. 100%. 100%. So moving on to the next one. So do we think the market in general is overvalued? If so, where? Where are you thinking at the moment? Um, as far as, I think we've got a bit of a two-paced market at the moment. When we're looking at, you know, some of your tech plays and things like that, we've got things that are just crazy expensive by traditional valuations. I mean, like, I don't know if you're familiar with Chamath at all, um, founder of Social Capital, ex-early Facebook investor, pretty well-known in financial circles. You know, he's coming on Twitter saying, don't worry if your businesses fall, fall to 20 times sales, you know, long-term they'll return to 40 times. Um, with this one, I just want to give a, a quote by Scott McNeely from the first tech boom. Um, he was the CEO of Sun Micro Devices. Um, just for a little bit of uh, background on this one, at the time, the stock was trading at $64 and it had revenue of $6.40 a share. So for those not familiar, revenue is total sales, doesn't include any expenses or anything like that. And he was asked on, I think it was CNBC or Fox Media or one of the shows, you know, how he felt for share, shareholders when the business, you know, fell 90%. And he said, my only question is, what were you thinking? At $64 to get a 10% return on your money over time, I have to give 100% of revenue back to you as a dividend each year which is kind of hard to do, you know, particularly when I've got, you know, I've got to pay expenses, you know, I've got to build things. I've also got to do this with no research and development cost. Now, on top of that, you also then have to not pay any taxes on this. And I can't pay any taxes on this revenue as a company either, which is kind of illegal. <laughs> what were you thinking? Yeah, just you know, if, it was, if it was an Australian company, that's the GST cost right there, right? Well, that's it. Or, you know, let alone before you actually pay any corporate tax or, you know, income tax on that. Now, you know, we've got, there are times where it is appropriate to pay a price like that for a business, right? If you pay, pay 10 times revenue for Google 15 years ago, you've done fantastically well from it. However, not all businesses that turn to these prices are worth anywhere near that. Yeah. So I, I am concerned at some of these, really high-flying names that are trading on multiples of sale and almost, you know, user growth rather than actual profit or revenue growth or anything like that. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, however, I think there are some tremendous opportunities in the energy sector at the moment. You know, like with that little report I did up on Whitehaven last night, I think what we're going to see over the short term is firstly markets are pricing some of these businesses like they're going to fail. Yeah. Now, my thoughts are, you know, when we look at coal, for example, by 2050, 2060, it's not going to make up part of our regular energy mix. Most likely, you are going to drive either an electric or a hydrogen car that is going to be powered by a mixture of renewable energy, so wind, solar, and most likely nuclear. Now, that being said, you're still going to need coal for tempering steel, all that sort of stuff. There's still going to be demand for it there. It's just the energy mix is going to drop off a little bit. You know, to the fact where I suspect it'll only be emerging markets that'll use it and, you know, strong industrial use. But, you know, take some of the prices we've seen with, with oil companies and that. You know, 
there was one point there where on normalized earnings, you're able to buy a Woodside at about 10 times earnings. Now, even with the thesis that all vehicles will be electric or hydrogen, you know, in coming years, people don't realize that cars for oil make, only make up about 15% of the industry. You know, there's manufacturing commercial uses for oil outside of that, you know, and the aviation industry actually uses about the same amount of oil each year as cars and trucks do. Yeah. You know, so these things, they still have opportunity. And, you know, I think it's some of the prices you're paying here. It's, it's quite fair for a long-term holder who, you know, isn't so ethically minded. Are you going to trust an electric or hydrogen plane anytime soon? Fuck no. <laughs> Mate, I, I'm a nervous flyer at the best of times. You know, and I kind of like the modern planes have worked for a hundred years. You know, I'm certainly not jumping on a Tesla rocket or, oh, sorry, a SpaceX rocket or a Blue Origin rocket or anything like that anytime soon. I agree with that. You know, it's, I think it's one of those ones where in some of these more value-oriented names, there is, there is honestly value to be had there. Um, you know, and I think for some of these big high flyers that have been real success stories, there's probably going to be some pain for investors coming at some point. Yeah. And, you know, part of that is what we're seeing with interest rates and, and a reduced taper by, the, by, you know, global central banks. Mm. So, you know, like if you look at the US 10-year last night, like it hit 1, 1.54%. Well, I think for a lot of investors, they don't realise the impact that interest rates actually have on an equity valuation. So um, just on a broad level, the value of a share you know, in general should be the value of the expected cash you can draw out of that business minus the rate of safety. Now, when you're discounting that future cash, because you've got to remember, if I offer you a dollar today, it's worth more than me offering you a dollar, you know, the promise of a dollar in a year's time. So when you take cash that, you know, you think a business is going to make in 10 years time and you're discounting it by, you know, one and a half percent, you're going to get a pretty big number at the end. However, if I'm discounting that by say 5% or 10%, it's worth peanuts. Yeah. You know, it's the same way that, you know, for last year when, you know, we were doing these COVID withdrawals, you know, for a balanced growth investor, who's my age, so 28, if you took out 10 grand, by retirement on average, it'll cost you about 216,000. With this, we almost have to reverse that. So $216,000 today, you know, at an 8% return is only worth 10 grand, you know, in 40 years time. Yeah. So, you know, I think with some of these, it does make sense to reduce some exposure, but at the same time, there's still some great value to be had in big tech. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't believe it, but Google right now is actually trading cheaper than Procter & Gamble. Yeah, right. So, you know, and with Google, you've got an absolutely dominant player in online search. You know, you've basically you take all their funky ventures and that sort of stuff. You write them down to zero. The company still has over $120 billion of cash on their balance sheet. So just for perspective, that will enable an investor to buy roughly a quarter of Australia's entire housing market. All right. So you've got huge amounts of cash there. You've seen growth rates there at about 20% a year. And, you know, it's trading on next year's earnings of around 21 times by most estimates. Yeah. Mate, that, that's cheap for a business growing 20%. Yeah, 100%. Now, what do you think um, What do you think the big considerations are to keep in mind at present for investors? Well, I think the big thing is, firstly, 
markets have had a great run. I mean, if you look at the US market, you know, it's doubled since COVID lows and plus some, you know, markets around the world are near all-time highs. And part of that's been is we've almost seen what's called Tina, so there's no other alternative. You know, so people have been putting money into risk, risk assets like shares and property. Now, I think if we were to start seeing rates rise and inflation kick up in the system, we could see, you know, some volatility and a pullback in the market at a broad level. Now, for some investors, that will scare them, but they've got to remember, we're not investing on a 12-month basis. You've got to be invested for the long term. And, you know, if you're someone who's 30 years old, realistically, a 20% pullback in the market today is going to have very minimal impact on your long-term returns, particularly when, you know, you're using dollar cost averaging and things like that. I mean, if you look at the dip, you know, the US market had over the GFC, for example, mate, that's almost a bad month now. Yeah. You know, it's one of those ones where you've got to take a longer term approach and allow your cash to compound for you. And, you know, like one of, one of the simplest strategies I like to use for clients is when we build our portfolios, I like a course satellite approach myself. Agreed, so do we. You know, and when we go active, generally we hold somewhere between 15 and 30 stocks. And ideally, we want the majority of these to be producing large amounts of cash and paying them back to us in dividends. Yeah. And what we want to do is then use that cash when markets sell off to buy great, you know, buy great businesses at a less than reasonable valuation. 100%. You know, it's not that difficult. I think a lot of investors try and freak out about, you know, timing the market to perfection. And, you know, if, oh, mate, you know, what if I, you know, get out now and, you know, the market falls 10%, I'm a genius. Yeah. Well, doesn't even matter. Well, here's the thing, you know, people forget as well. And, you know, this is a big one is unless you're retired, you're paying tax on, on those gains anyway. You know, and if it's a position you've held for 12 months, you know, let's call it 11 months, worst case scenario, and you're in the highest tax brackets held in your personal name, cool, you've just had a 25% reduction in your, in your gains on that one for tax. Oh, sorry, if, you know, it could be a 49% reduction for tax. You held it 12 months, you know, it's still a quarter of your gains gone in an unnecessary tax to pay. Right, bigger than the loss that you just sold out for. Exactly. And I think, yeah. I think it's key to understand, you know, because you get this too, bro, and I get all the time, people inbox me, hey, bro, I got 10, 10 grand I want to invest, right? Fucking seems to be the number, right? 10 grand. <laughs> where should I invest 10 grand? Fucking nowhere. Up your nose, right? I don't know. Because the problem is, right, If we and you take that GFC example, if you've been investing for, from the American GFC, from the, you know, the dip to now, like I said, it's almost a bad month. But if you take, say, the Australian GFC, for example, and you invested 10 grand, at the peak and you didn't invest anything else because you got scared, it would have taken you 10 years to get that money back to where it was, right? Just from sitting and holding. So it's really important that we understand here, team, that strategy is more effective than product. And if you hold good stocks and you continue to consistently invest, i.e. dollar cost averaging, you're always going to be on a game train rather than trying to speculate and hold. Well, that's it. And, you know, the big thing to remember is, and it's one a lot of investors don't think when they consider an index, right? These index levels aren't calculated with dividends reinvested or dividends coming back to you. You know, like it's one of those ones where, you know, investors really need to take a long-term approach to their money and what they're doing. And like I said earlier, 90% of your returns are going to come from the actual strategic assets you hold, not from 
you know, whether you've gone into an index fund or you've got money with platinum or whoever, you know, it's all about the actual strategy that's going in there and allowing your money to compound. Yeah, hundred percent. I think I just did a video on diversification, right? Because obviously the big scarcity, you know, you got fuckwits in the property sector who will sit out here and say, if you don't, you know, no need to diversify if you do something well, you're a flop because no one can, no one can do anything well. No one's a fortune teller, right? But when we look at diversification, you're obviously going to diversify yourself out of the top tier returns, but you're also going to diversify yourself out of the, t- the top tier losses, right? And you're able to maintain some some strategic movements moving forward. But what Tyson was just saying, what I say with our, our alphas or our satellites is if you have a, you know, your core is generally diversified strategic asset allocation, 90% of the time, you know, it's going to be what, what outperforms. It's going to be what gets you the returns. And then all your alphas and your satellites are going to do is that's you, having a little bit of a play in areas that you think show extreme value, right? That's exactly right. You know, and like one strategy I run with clients, which is pretty simple, you know, it's a, I don't want to call it an automatic rebalance, but it basically is. So, you know, say you're a 70, 30 investor. So 70% growth, 30% defensive. You know, the stock market rises significantly and now you're 80% growth, 20% defensive. You know what we're going to do? We're going to trim off the growth, add into the defensive, rebalance the portfolio out. Vice versa happens, you know, if the market was to crash and you've gone from 70% growth down to 50%. We're going to take some of the money out of your defensive assets and put it back in and rebalance that portfolio over time because it's all about taking advantage of cheap prices when they appear and, you know, diversifying your stream of revenue and income coming into yourself. So you're not relying on one asset. It's it's like, you know, when you see some of these SMSF property spruikers, you know, which... Mate, they shit me to tears. You know, if you if you were someone who holds an SMSF and your entire portfolio is a million dollar house in Sydney, which I don't even think you can buy a house for a million bucks in Sydney anymore. But now if you pretend you're retired, right? Firstly, the yield you're going to get on that at the moment is peanuts. You know, minus any sort of property costs, all that sort of stuff. So best. You know, but secondly. And here's the risk you have. What if you can't get the place tenanted for six months? Your income dries up. You know, you can't sell a bedroom. You can't take three bricks out of your house, you know, to buy groceries. You know, you need that stream of assets available and different streams of income to cover across different market events. And that's where one of our philosophies is the most important thing is investing purpose. And I don't know if you share the same sentiment as me, but I love all assets, right? I love all assets. I, I, Every asset has its pros and cons, and we don't we don't drive wealth for the sake of wealth. We focus on, you know, we make sure that we look at what's the purpose. Now, if your purpose is to be asset rich on paper, there's no question in the world you're probably more likely to leverage in a property long term. But like we've always seen, right? Big property holders, there's tenancy risk. You can and tenancy risk, and and when you're retired, and this might say everyone. Property is the trash retirement asset, unless you've got 20 of them, right? Because you can't sell the lounge room if you want to go on a holiday. You have to realize the whole thing, you got to pay tax on the whole thing, et cetera, et cetera. But also on top of that, the yield's terrible, right? And the you want to have flexibility in your portfolio in retirement. You want to have access to money. The amount of clients that I've come in that's come to me at 55, 60 with 12, $10 million plus in property and still living paycheck to paycheck is fucking phenomenal, right? Thanks to low yield, thanks to high taxes, right, and having to split it up as an income between the two, it's fucking not. We can. Uh, we've had a recent client um, 
over the last three years, and they came to us with a very large property portfolio that was generating, generally on paper, looked like a good income, right? Yep. After taxes, costs, and then splitting the income up, it worked out they walked away with 10 grand a month, right? So take take that size of a portfolio and walk away with 100 grand a year. It's fucking trash, right? Yeah, in three, exactly. three years, we've transitioned them now to keep that asset and have that income generated through through liquid funds, through shares and like a bucket strategy retirement program. They've, in three years only, they've used that income to then generate the same income tax-free, right? So now they've got the two with no tenancy risk. Exactly. You know, it's the big thing, you know, you've got to diversify your income streams. Now, myself, I do have a preference for shares. You know, I like the liquidity of them. I like the fact that I can, you know, hold things. And it's particularly if you get it right, you know, there's not another asset class out there where, you know, you can make 15, 20 times your money in a diversified manner, you know, with no leverage. And it's all purpose driven, right? Like we get a lot of people that you get people who say, I want to, I want to travel, I want to be financially free and I want to travel the world and be able to run my business from anywhere in the world. Well, ideally, to be fair with you, there's two things that you need to focus on here. And one of the, and none of that revolves around asset base, right? You need to be able to have income. Income effectively that isn't risk. And your two your two asset classes that you're going to get this from is direct business, you know, running a, a business that generates that. And secondarily is, a, is passive business, which is going to be shares, right? That's what you need to be focused on. You don't need to be going and buying properties. Not only due to the fact that they don't achieve that. But secondarily to that, they're a fucking nightmare to deal with when you're overseas. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think one thing that a lot of investors mistake with property is they don't look at the actual cash flow. Now, myself, I love property when you can get a good yield on it and it's generating cash back in your pocket. Yeah. However, if you've got this thing negatively geared, basically what you're doing is you're taking a long-term pun that the price of that property is going to go, is going to go up. 100%. Now, for the last decade, for the most part, that's been a you know a strategy that's worked. However, we've also seen interest rates fall, you know, at a broad basis from you know six seven percent down to 0.1 at one point. Now, when you're looking at that, of course, the value of an asset asset's going to increase. But if you're not appropriately diversified and you, you're not paying that debt off, you know, if rates rise, the value of that asset is going to fall significantly. Yeah, and that's a great point because the reason simple reason assets going up is it's easier to buy the asset, right? That's it. That's all it is. It's easier to get money to buy the asset. But the problem we're seeing is people negatively gearing or interest only in this period. And people, the classic rhetoric, right? The classic rhetoric of property doubles every 10 years, which it doesn't, but people like to spit that shit. Now, it's all well and good to say that, but if you can't lie, if you don't make it to that 10-year point, you're fucked, right? You've just wasted a lot of money on interest, a lot of money on cost at a aren't coming back to you in returns. And then you've got to sell the interest rates rise at the eighth year mark. Mate, the net return you're going to get at the 10th year mark if it did double wasn't going to be that great anyhow. Now you're at a loss because you can't make it that far. Well, here's a great one with a client I saw a few weeks back. About a decade ago, they bought an off-the-plan apartment in Gladstone. Now, they say property doubles every 10 years. In 10 years, this client's lost 60% of the value on it. Townsville's the same. Townsville's very similar. Yeah. Yeah, but I understand that I don't want to get negative on property because I do recommend the property for that. But primary purpose of property is that a roof over your head, right? Now, in in places like Gladstone, in places like well, Gladstone was a different story because of the mining. But let's say places like Townsville, 
the pro to that asset in that circumstance is the fact that it's really cheap for you to own your own home. That's the pro, right? The pro is that you can buy that asset and pay it off really soon and not have housing costs that you can then use to grow your wealth elsewhere. It's not always about doubling your money and investing and investing. And people are going to understand that. Again, going back to the purpose of your purchase. Exactly. Investment or not, the purpose of your purchase is whether it's shares, business, property, is really, really important to ensure that you lower your risk and you increase your chance of success in any aspect. It's, you know, for me, high quality property is a great asset to own. But it's also, you know, you've got to understand that you are taking an added risk by not being diversified with your cash flow streams. You know, it's similar to having, you know, all your stock portfolio in a single share. 100%. Now, I don't know anyone who thinks that's a smart idea. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Or, you know, more realistically, you know, it might be you have your house, you have an investment property, that's it. Really, you've got two shares. Yeah. Right. One of which you know is not producing you anything, so you're relying on growth only. You know, it's for me, that's a lot riskier than, you know, diversifying things out. 100%. Um, all right, so moving on. Um Moving on to the last sort of question around this out. So what do you think the best approach from here is for investors? What do they need to consider and what they should, should they be looking at moving forward to ensure best chances of success in their portfolio? All right. So I think the thing is to take a long-term approach with these things always. You know, I, I suspect that if you've held some of these stocks that are trading at very expensive valuations and you've done very well at, it might be an idea to take, take some profit out. Yeah. All right. Add a little bit more cash. But most importantly, you need to be thinking long-term about your exposures. And I think one thing that a lot of investors forget is when you take a 20, 30 year approach, a pullback of 10, 15% over the next 12 months doesn't mean much. Yeah. It's all about the long-term purpose of those assets. Agreed. And I think um, I think it's important that people understand that long-term space, like what we're recommending at the moment, like what is not recommendation, what we're making happen is we are, I will be transparent in saying that we are holding a little bit of a defensive approach given the run we've had, given interest rates rising <laughs> and the fact that any new cash we're going in is being invested at a lower rate than what the existing cash was. We're holding a little bit more defensive. We've transitioned across to a dy dynamic asset allocation instead of strategic just for now. Um, but secondarily to that, we're ensuring that our clients increase their buffers from three to six months, right? So their cash buffers in their own name. That way we can keep investing the way things are. And if opportunity arises, you've got spare cash there to be able to take advantage of that. It, it, exactly right. I, I think it's one where like take say a flight center or a webjet, right? Now, if you look purely at the stock price, these things are still down significantly from where they were pre-COVID. Yeah. But if you look at the actual market capitalization or the value of these businesses, they're worth significantly more. Yeah. Right. Because they issued a lot of cheap shares right at the peak of COVID, you know, when everyone was scared. Well, even, even some of your banks who have rounded back up to probably 70% of their, their actual valuation. You know, we know NAV and Westpac started offering, um, they did their share buybacks and they did the, uh, what is it called? The, what was the offer that NAV just released last month? Oh, I'm not, not familiar. I, I don't hold that myself. But, I was just going to say, I'll look at the banks this way. And what they've done for a long time is they've done the opposite of good capital management as a business. Yeah. All right. Like what they should be doing if they want to maximize shareholder value is like, and it's an issue with banks just because the way they operate. You know, they are a leverage bet on the economy. To yeah. a very large degree, right? So if you're looking 
at the bank as a, you know, purely as a shareholder. Middle of March last year, when they were issuing capital, you know, I think ANZ was offering new shares at $14 or something like that. They should have been buying stock back. Yeah. Because it's, you know, so cheap. But unfortunately, you know, due to their legal requirements, they can't do that. And yet now, you know, these things are, I don't want to say they're priced to, to perfection, but they're, you know, definitely relying on, you know, the economy being strong moving forward and, you know, the worst of this being behind us. And now they're going off and buying shares back. Yeah, you know, and they're paying twice what they could have done for that that business. We 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 definitely unloaded a few, like we because we got in a outside of like we got into I think we got in at CBA. So low, low. We got in CBA very low, but um, we were getting we we had purchase orders under thirteen dollars for all the banks, right? I think we're getting some at low tens. Yeah, and. And then yeah, we get some buybacks. You get you get got notifications of buybacks recently, and yeah, we're definitely unloading some of those from that because um, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy, and realistically, I think they're seeing it as uh, they're pretty bullish on their their total valuation, which realistically we're still only at 75 percent of their original valuation, but they're that's what they're bullish on. But you think why weren't you doing this? Why why weren't you looking at this early? You know. Yeah, exactly. You know, like when it comes to the banks, probably the one I'm most bullish on is Macquarie. Yeah. You know, like I've held this thing from about $40 in my own personal account. Um, you know, during COVID last year, when it got down to 70, we were increasing exposure like crazy. Yeah. But, you know, the thing you've got to remember with Macquarie is it's not just a, a bank. You know, it's a great infrastructure and asset management play. Correct. You know, and a big part of their earnings are in very reliable recurring streams plus you get exposure you know to the investment markets you know trading income actual banking and all that sort of stuff on top you know i think with the banks is they're you know simplifying their business models like you know they've got out of wealth they've got it out of insurance you know i don't think it's it'd be wrong to say they fucked that up pretty bad you know they will become more simpler businesses over time and with the introduction of a lot of blockchain, right? So their 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 utilization of blockchain is getting a lot more sophisticated. Yeah. However, you know, with these being simpler businesses, you don't see the growth opportunities you once had. Yeah. You know, I think they're going to continue to be a reliable part of the yield perspective for a lot of clients. You know, particularly because Australia's banking market is very different to a lot of global banking banking markets. But you know, if I'm a say I'm 25 years old. And I'm looking at things that are really going to grow my portfolio for the long term. I probably don't want to have 30% of my or 40% of my portfolio exposed to these. 100%. Yeah. You know, which is, um, you know, one reason why, you know, on the diversification piece, I'm a big fan of equal weighted ETFs. Yeah. Yeah. We just, we just included um, maybe Van Eck. No. The uh, MVW. It might have been Van Eck or, and there was, um, Oh, I can't remember. I should know this. There's another equal weight we just chucked in. Actually, we chucked in and we chucked in an equal weight into our sustainable portfolio as well. Yeah, look, you know, I just think that particularly when you're looking at the local market, for example, you know, about the 40%. The problem with indexes, right? It's the problem with indexes is if you're going to have a problem with indexes, the problem is that you can be overweight stocks that are overvalued. And that's the reason you've got a bigger holding is because their valuation is extra and you could be underweight things that are undervalued, right? exactly you know for me it's just locally it's a diversification thing you know really if you're holding the, the asx 200 you got about 40 percent of your money in the big four banks rio bhp csl yeah. now 
no offense to these businesses because you know CSL is one of the best businesses in the world. Oh, mate, I just all I wish with it is my dad put ten grand in it when I was, you know, when it floated, and uh, I wouldn't be working today. You know, I think it's gone from seventy cents a share on a split-adjusted basis to over three hundred. Yeah. You know, however, you know, it, you are putting a large chunk of your portfolio in those four companies, and for a lot of the businesses, you know, on the smaller end of that market, you've got a lot less exposure. And there's well, a lot of innovation at the top end as well for those. There can be, you know, but like I um. I think, you know, I think as an investor, your job is to prudently allocate capital. Yeah. And I think, you know, going with that sort of more equal weight rules-based approach is going to help. It, you know, there are some downsides with it as well, but, you know, I, I think it's a good approach for a lot of investors, and, you know, just to really focus on that long-term. And, you know, if, if you are using a core satellite approach and you are, you know, treating your satellites almost like, you know, a few thematic punts, let's say. Make sure there's sectors you can understand. 100%. And, you know, there's good rationale behind it. Yeah, correct. You know, so like healthcare is something that, you know, I personally am, I don't like some of the valuations in the space right now, but long-term, you know, I think it's a great place to have some money invested. Yeah. You know, technology is going to continue to innovate and change the world. You know, it's, it's all about having you know, exposure to areas that make sense to you and you can understand. 100%. All right, bro. Um, I think we might wrap it up there. Is there anything else you want to add? Mate, that's just about everything. Like, thanks for having us on. No worries. I'll, um, when this goes in the group, we'll get some people that'll have some questions on there, but I think we covered off a fucking lot. So yeah. Yeah. If, if um, anyone has any questions, just fire them in and I'll uh, reply up there and, you know, let's, like I said, let's have some fun with this. Yeah. So um, we got a, Everyone watching, you know, obviously with your super and stuff, we we manage your portfolios and we do a lot of self, a lot of people do a lot of their own self-managed uh, investment portfolios, not not super funds, their own self-managed portfolios with guidance. If you want something a little bit more strategic, guys, something a little bit more in-depth um, than what we provide or whatever, you know, Tyson's always been here. He's always there. Um, if you want to go and do some more direct stuff, you know, we can recommend, you know, we can work with Tyson as well and make sure that, you still be our client, but you can go and work with him on that and, and you know pay his fees on that front, which uh, he loves doing as well. So it's always been an offer there, but this is something that might uh, get a few of you more interested in touching base with him and, and utilizing him for your more direct portfolios or stuff that you want a bit more work on because we don't charge asset fees, we don't charge anything like that. So if somebody wants to utilize you for that, we're more than happy to incorporate that into our service as well. Awesome, mate. You know, and if anyone does reach out, let's have a chat. Yeah, for sure. All right, brother, I'll let you go. Um, I'll put this up and then we'll chat a bit later, yeah? Awesome, mate. Have fun. You too, mate. Bye.